0: of Monday Musings with R.C. Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome. So for those of you who have never tuned in to this show, my name is R.C. Riley, and I'm a writer, a performer, a storyteller, an activist, and I am using my platform as such to um, have discussions about things that are important to people of color. And today, I have a very special guest, the Reverend Dr. Attorney, Aaron J. McLeod. Welcome, Reverend Aaron.
1: Thank Thank you so much, my dear sister, for having me on. God bless you and your family.
0: Thank you, same to you. So I am especially excited about um, today's show because as many of my friends know, For the past two and a half years, I have been the primary caregiver to my 83-year-old great aunt. And um, I have learned so much during this time about end-of-life planning, about advanced directives, living wills. I mean, I've rummaged through through drawers trying to find wills that were somewhere in some envelope, folded up five times. and I've had to have discussions with my own parents to make sure that they have all of their end-of-life affairs in order. And these are tough conversations for people. So I'm 42 at that age where I have a, um, a child as well as um, a parent who in another 10 years or so will probably need a lot more care. And so for me, it's important for us to be prepared before we get to that moment so that everybody won't be scrambling and so that we can potentially have things in order enough to leave a legacy for my son and for his children. So that's what we're going to talk about today, legacy building for Black people. So there are some basics that I think we should start off with. Um, First of all, let me just start from the top and properly introduce you because I've been a member of Trinity for 12 years. So I know you as Reverend Aaron from Trinity. Um, And I know that uh, you are the senior pastor of Gorham United. um, Gorham, did I pronounce it correctly?
1: Yes, Gorham. Gorham
0: United Methodist Methodist Church. Okay. Um, And so you're not full-time at Trinity anymore. Sometimes I forget that. (laughs) (laughs) So I will get to your bio and make sure that everybody knows a little bit more about you. I thought it was very interesting um, that you are both... Well, no, you are a pastor um, as well as an attorney. And that was pretty intriguing to me. So I'm sure other people have some questions as well there. But let me just get to your bio. So here we go. All right, everybody. I'm sorry I didn't have this pulled up. I actually had it up and then closed it by accident. So I'll open it back up. And here we go, scrolling through my phone. So Reverend Aaron J. McLeod is a licensed attorney in the state of Illinois. His practice revolves around business law, nonprofit law, and trust and estates. Um, Reverend McLeod, as I lovingly call him, also provides clients with management and diversity consulting services. In addition, his responsibilities as a practicing attorney, um, in addition to those, responsibilities. He serves as the pastor of the historic Gorham United Methodist Church in the Washington Park community of Chicago. He's the former executive director of special projects at Trinity United Church of Christ, where the Reverend Otis Moss III is senior pastor. Reverend Aaron is a licensed and ordained clergyman in the Baptist Church with standing in the United Church of Christ. Welcome again. So now I'm trying to find out how you had all this time to acquire all these the de- the- degrees. I am tongue-tied just trying to ask you the question. (laughs) I mean, it seems like it would take a lifetime to become Reverend, doctor, and an attorney. So how did you pull that off and so young?
1: I'd say it was uh, the training and the expectation um, from uh, my time at Morehouse College. Uh, There's this thing called the Morehouse mystique, and quite simply what it is, is a group of young men, particularly Uh, Late hours in the night, we're just expressing our dreams of who we want to be and holding each other accountable, and it becomes a manifestation. But at Morehouse, it was the first time that I was exposed to African-American men who were uh, credentialed, uh, passed the master's degree, who some had double doctorates, and it wasn't necessarily uh, the attainment of these degrees for people to worship us or to provide us accolades, but... The expectation is that we would utilize this training to serve others, to uh, be our brother and our sister's keepers. So uh, everything that I've done thus far educationally has been with the intention of serving uh, my community, serving Black people, helping people in general. I have clients who are African-American, who are Caucasian, who are of Latin, American descent, uh, East Asian. Uh, I try to... Uh, serve all people, but I try to do it with uh, the air of expectation that I will exude uh, the finer qualities of integrity, uh, competency, um, and uh, have uh, 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 this notion of of a relationship uh, with my clients. Nice.
0: Thank you. My brother is a graduate of Morehouse. I mean, every every man that I meet that has graduated from Morehouse just has a certain air about them. And I have to tell you that um, when I think about my son is a sophomore in high school now, and I think about his choices for um, college, definitely Morehouse is at the top of the list just because of the reputation and also those personal relationships with folks. So, yeah, that's awesome. So, um, So you decided when you were at Morehouse that you wanted to be reverend
1: as well as an attorney yeah you know what happened was um rc is that uh when i left high school arguably before high school uh i had a uh guidance counselor miss glover and uh she thought that i was articulate um and what she really meant and and i hold nothing against her for this is that i was an african-american young man who could express himself uh, in a ways that my other uh, peers could not, and to that end, she said, "You should be an attorney," and it stuck. I thank her for challenging me wow. to do that. So, uh, from middle school, uh, trying to uh, overcome my own issues, uh, being um, just trying to find my way, if you will, uh, okay. I was bigger than everybody, uh, had some athletic prowess. Uh, But I was different as well. And so uh, student government really worked for me, particularly in high school. i was a student body president. I was an elected officer of the student council uh, for my sophomore to a senior year of, of, of high school. So when I left Raleigh, North Carolina, where I'm from, headed down to Atlanta, it was the intention to become an attorney. But then after my second week of school, I started hanging out in the Martin Luther King International Chapel. And I met a gentleman by the name of, Dean uh, Lawrence Edward Carter and he changed my life and so I never forget uh, after my sophomore year I called my mother and I told her I was going on our seminary swing whereby we went to uh, divinity schools and seminaries uh, to um, uh, to view them to visit them with the potential of going there for graduate school and I called my mother and I said mom I feel I have a calling These mm-hmm. things she had trained me up to do in the church um, I, I feel God pushing me in this direction. But within that, uh, the beautiful thing about the chapel at Morehouse is that it was an extension of the classroom. So I grew up in a very charismatic church. We had great music. But after the choir sang, I was falling asleep because I couldn't really relate. Oh I was not um, that literate biblically uh, at that young age. But when I got to Morehouse, uh, I had this uh, intellectual curiosity and I was actually going to church, and I was taking copious notes. I was learning about people who I would never heard before—Arthur oh, wow. uh, Taylor, um, you know, uh, folks um, who had uh, shaped uh, my learning. Uh, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, in particular, uh, who I wrote my graduate thesis on uh, at Harvard. Uh, Benjamin Elijah Mays. These were not normal people who I was um, exposed to in my Sunday school education but these were great men uh, and women, such as Prathia Hall, um, who I had been exposed to, and I wanted to embody their qualities. So at that time, this notion of dual degrees were very um Rampant within higher education. So I told my mother, I said, I'm still going to be a lawyer. I can do a JD and a PhD or JD and an MDF simultaneously and I'll take a year off of graduate school. Uh, So she was with it. I was with it. But more importantly, I was in an environment where I was challenged to just dream dream aggressively and uh, to uh, be or seek to be the change that uh, we need to see.
0: That is an awesome story. I mean, that alone could be this show right now. So I'm hoping that somebody heard that and is blessed by that. and is If they're contemplating a, a dream that's in their mind, that they can take this as inspiration from Reverend Aaron to say, just dream big and just do it. And if you don't have the support around you, there's more than likely somebody in this world that you're less than six degrees of separation from who can assist you with that. If nothing else, contact me and I'll put you in touch with somebody somewhere. So thank you for that. That, that was encouraging. And I really want to start off with some encouraging words because I know sometimes when we talk about, um, you know, end of life planning and advanced directives, people think it's so dreary and dark And I like to think of it as like the title legacy building, because not just in terms of if we think about how we um, use money and leave that to generations for generational wealth, but I think the legacy of caring for an elderly person, caring for a loved one, and the legacy of having affairs in order, the legacy of having tough conversations throughout your life, such that when a crisis comes, you're just not stuck and confused. So I think it's all of that that ties into this legacy from my perspective. And I guess I feel that way because of my personal experiences and because it's been so challenging for me to get people in my family to have these conversations. And I will say that I talked to my father a few years ago, and and this was a while ago, and I said, Dad, I'm gonna take out a life insurance policy on you. Someone's going to come and do a physical, blah, blah, blah. And my father laughed hysterically. He was like, no, you're not. You're trying to kill me off already. And I was like, no, actually, I'm trying to be prepared because if something were to happen to you before I thought that you should leave this earth, I'm going to grieve. I'm a daddy's girl. I'm going to be messed up. (laughs) So I want to make sure that I can afford to take the time to grieve and still have income to function and to care for my child. Or if I don't need that much time to take off from work, I want to be able to have that and leave it for your grandson. Um, there might be some things that he needs to just keep him in good spirits at the loss of his papa. Or just to have that money so that in the future, when he wants to buy his first home, he doesn't have to wait till he's 40 like I did. And he'll have that cushion. But at least we know that we're taken care of and we don't have to worry about it. Or if he wants to go to college and he can't get into the college of his choice because he's $15,000 short, that that because of your life and because of our planning, that he's well taken care of. And that's part of that legacy from you. And my dad didn't get it at the time. And I wasn't as articulate then as I am now to go through all of that with him. And so now he's saying, I wish you had have done that because I wish my grandson would have something when I leave. And that wish I had is what we're trying to um, keep from having to have that conversation later after the fact. So first things first, what is... Um, Legacy counseling. You do legacy counseling with families and what does that entail and what is
1: it? Yes. Well, I am the legacy coach. And, uh, can I share something very quickly? You have time. Yes. So I'm the legacy coach and, uh, I branded myself as a legacy coach after, uh, having 14 years of practice in the state of Illinois. And my goal is to coach uh, families in particular on advanced care planning, uh, business uh, formation, estate planning, uh, intellectual property management, uh, nonprofit real estate, scholarship attainment, and strategy. And so within that, what we are doing is we are working uh, with families and uh, stakeholders, individuals, uh, even folks who are not married, to figure out a way in which they can leave a legacy through business development and estate planning. What is an estate? It's what you own. It's your home. It's your car. Uh, It's your bank account. It's your investments. It's your annuities. Unfortunately, if you're domestically challenged, it's the blanket that you keep around yourself to stay warm as you sleep on the street. In some, it's what you own. It's what you are in control of. And there's a difference between owning things and being in control of things. A little tip I'll teach you uh, going forward. But all we're trying to do is encourage people to build a legacy through planning, making uh, critical decisions, having a crucial conversations, having intentional conversations, I guess that's a better way to say it, about how you want your uh, life to impact others who you care about, your heirs, the people who are connected to you, your son, my sons, uh, my wife, um, uh, my, my, my mother, um, if I um, predecease her, um, So that's the, it's the plan, it's the blueprint, it's the outline of how we um, navigate that process.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Um, and then, what is it? well, first of all, what are
1: advanced directives? Let's just start with a basic. Okay. All right, so advanced directives. We live in a constitutional uh, democracy uh, whereby we are federated uh, states coming together uh, to live. Uh, we have uh, state pride. You're an Illinoisan. Uh, we have Indiana, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and the other direction. And a lot of time, uh, a lot of the fact that you're a Big Ten graduate, I'm a Big Ten graduate as well, our state pride uh, really comes out on the gridiron, but really it's the rights in which the state laws govern the way in which we live. And so in light of the fact that we live uh, in a federated uh, democracy, we have federal rights as well as state rights. You have uh, advanced directives. We deal with this whole notion Uh, that we have this liberties, the right to freedom, freedom of of speech, freedom of press, freedom uh, to come together and assemble. But this whole notion of freedom of speech is this right of determination to say how you want to be treated in advance when you cannot articulate it. So an advance directive is a legal document, not a complex legal document, Arguably, a simple legal document. It is a healthcare document that says that R.C. wants a particular person or an agent, or a doctor, to perform certain things or certain uh, procedures when R.C. cannot uh, stipulate those things. She is incompetent. She's in a comatic uh, state, and so in advance, you're writing that you want your trusted loved your spouse, if your spouse is not a trustworthy person, they won't follow your directions, Mm -hmm. uh, you're not gonna have them make your advance directives. Uh, There will be uh, what we call healthcare power of attorney, which is a state statutory form, whereby that person will not make decisions for you, they will carry out decisions that you have already made in advance. So R.C. says that she has been caring for her 83-year-old aunt, who she loves dearly. Her aunt has already gone ahead and said, I don't want death delaying treatment. I want to die of natural causes. Or I want to die or have the greatest treatment or be treated to the greatest extent, um, unless if it's deemed futile by a medical professional. And the person who they will call will be the agent, R.C. Whomever you deem a person to carry out your uh, wishes. Now, let's dispel some myths. Uh, when you have big families they think that the oldest child trumps everybody else that's not true that's biblical the law of the firstborn but that has nothing to do within the state of Illinois and our statutes or our court system just because you're the oldest child you may be responsible you may be uh, big mama's favorite but if there's nothing in writing in particular all the children have an equal say and it will come out in a vote if there is not a written directive and so with that, uh, that agent is someone who you trust, they carry out those uh, directives. So you have the healthcare power of attorney as one advance directive, whereby the agent is making healthcare decisions for you. You have the uh, living will. The living will. A lot of people think that a living will is a property document. I'll go and I'll serve uh, in the legal ministry over at PUSH or Trinity uh, two places where I've volunteered in the past. And they'll say, Reverend attorney, I want to get my affairs in order. I want to ensure that my grandkids have uh, things that I have worked hard for. Draft me up a living will. And I laugh, because a living will is not a uh, property document, it's an advanced directive. And it's not a laughing matter. It's just the fact that they don't know. And what it is, is the last will and testament for health care that says that if I'm dying, of terminal illnesses that's not I'm 95 years old and I'm winded after running uh, the Chicago Marathon these are atypical healthy people but no I have stage four cancer I have renal failure I have cardiovascular disease on the spectrum of uh, not coming back to healthfulness at that time, I will sign that I don't want death delaying treatment. I want to die of natural causes. Why? Because if I'm on a machine, somebody has to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to exacerbate, remember that word, my estate, the things that I own, and my little box of of, of property, be it my house, my car, uh, my, my, my income property, my annuities, whatever those things are to pay for. Um, Treatment that's inevitably not going to work. Then we have what we call the post document. The post document is the practitioner's orders for life-sustaining treatment. Uh, That is a medical order to be quite honest with you. It's actually not an advanced directive. The difference between an advanced directive and a medical order is that the patient, or who we call the principal, will execute those documents and they'll put them in a safe place. What's the safe place? Believe it or not, your freezer. Why? Because if you come uh, and the medical uh, paramedics are called to your house, they're not going to be going through a lockbox. They're going to go to that refrigerator, find out who your doctor is, and find your medical records. That's where we tell everybody to put those forms. But a medical order, the post, uh, comes into a play when you have a patient who is terminally ill who is going to be making recurring visits to the emergency room department. Mm-hmm. And They know that their doctor uh, presumes that they have a year or less to live, Mm -hmm. and the doctor and the patient are going to have a conversation where the doctor is going to educate them on the various forms of treatment options that they have. Another round of chemo, not having another round of chemo. Um, Another round of radiation, not having another round of radiation. Uh, The reality that you can no longer benefit from what we call curative care, but Maybe we need to graduate to palliative care a form of hospice care. And in light of the fact that you're terminally ill, the likelihood of you coming back to the emergency room department, we're going to have an agreement between the patient and the physician on what that form of treatment is going to be. And that will be housed within the medical records of the hospital, the medical institution. A copy may go home, but it's not going to be housed at home because it has no utility at home. It's for First responders, uh, for doctors, nurses at the hospital to follow those orders, which the patient, as well as the medical officer, the doctor, or the nurse practitioner, has agreed and counselled the patient on on how they will be treated, because their life is at the end. They're at the end of life. Right.
0: I appreciate that because I've gone through two. Well, I work in the medical field. I work in Rush during the day, and so I've had. Um, You know, two, three, four full days of all of this. So I know those things backwards and forwards, but a lot of people don't. And this is new information, like just the word post. People are like, what? Um, So I appreciate you taking the time to define those things. Um, I know in my situation with my great aunt, for instance, I did have the post on the refrigerator, but I put it on the outside of her door. And as soon as the EMTs came, they saw it, ripped it straight off. And so I replaced it. The next time she came back from the ER, I put another one up there. The next time they ripped the straight. So it was right there in their face. There were no questions. Um, We had a situation at home. My girlfriend was there with me. She thought my aunt needed 911. I said, she's on hospice. Do not dial 911. She does not want any life-saving treatment. I will not, even though I want this woman to live as long as possible, I will not do anything that goes against her wishes. So we are not, we will uh, call hospice and they will tell us how to comfort her during this situation. And my girlfriend said, comfort, wait, 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 what if she leaves this earth right in front of us? That is her wish. Mm-hmm. It is my job to see to it that her wish be granted, not that I do what I wanna do. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I said that she was like, no, I gotta see that in writing somewhere. I was like, no problem. We're going to put you on. You you need to sit down and watch this next show with the Reverend Attorney. <laughs> and then oh, you're going to learn right. about that. Because people often feel like if there's someone who's in their care, that they have the right to make these decisions, even though the person has already made a decision. And your job is to carry it out. And I think that's the toughest thing for a caregiver, a loved one, who may come in towards the end of that person's life and feel like, you know, it's so panicky and we're in crisis and they're not able to make the best decision or when they did make this decision, they really didn't mean it. I know what's best. Mm-hmm. And I hear that a lot from families. And I think because I'm in healthcare and do have this awareness that um, I'm always trying to talk people down and say, well, this is exactly why we have this conversation before before people get sick. Mm-hmm. So that.
1: Can I add, mm-hmm. Can I add a, a caveat to that? You and your aunt, um, your girlfriend, are very prepared, and I applaud you. Let's talk about what happens when you're not prepared. You don't have the advanced directives in place, right? So what normally happens is Big Mama has 10 kids. Five of them get along, five of them don't get along, and they all lie. They lie about how Big Mama uh, loved them and that they are the favorite, and they know Big Mama's wishes. But Big Mama does not have an advanced directive. Not one, not the healthcare power attorney, not a living will, uh, no post, um, nothing. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the point where we can execute a pulse, right? And so we're in a hospital, no matter where you are, Rush, University of Chicago, uh, Mercy before it closes down, and you're having to find someone to make a decision. And so what happens? you have the family feud, the blowout of all blowouts, the fight that is managed by the nurse, the doctor, the social worker, uh, the case manager, sometimes even the chaplain to figure out who's gonna make the decision. And all of this could have been avoided if you would have simply executed some simple agency documents, some simple advanced directives. And you know, when there's a fight, one thing that we always ask during this saga is, who started it? Who was the culprit? Big mama. Why? Because she did not sit people down mm. or execute some documents by herself and give them to the right folks to make the necessary decisions. That's, that's tough. So how do you,
0: in, in your business and and just in your life as pastor, as well as as an attorney, how do you um, encourage people to have these conversations when they say things like, "Well, that's personal. I don't need," or, or "I'm not going to die anytime soon. Why would I talk to my children about this?" How do you, or how would you suggest someone like me, because all of my friends are now having to have these conversations with their parents? How would you suggest we go about having these conversations?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, RC, you and I are the same age. Um, we came out of high school, college the same year. Um, I had been practicing law at the time, uh, probably about seven years. And uh, my father get a phone call from my mother. Your dad's not doing well. He, he went to basketball tournament uh, that they normally go to annually, uh, college basketball tournament. Dad wouldn't get out the bed and he wouldn't go to the game. Something's not right. Um, That's not dad. Dad would do anything to get out the house to get to the golf course of the pool. room. Dad had stage four cancer Mm -hmm. and had nothing in place. Now, I'm an attorney here in Chicago um, doing estate planning, trusting states. Um, Learned by some of the best here in Chicago, right? I had to come home with my dad uh, pre-deathbed say three weeks before he died to get all of his wishes in place mm. and the thing that really rocked me was my mother uh, who I loved dearly um, I saw her to begin to be less strong and when I say that you know my mother's strong like my mother is everything to me like make dollar out of 15 cents you know she's superwoman but to deal with the reality that her husband, the father of her children, would no longer be here and deal with not really comprehend the reality that he was going through a life cycle of death, arguably prematurely, my father died when he was 62 years old, um, was a shock. And so at the time, I was 35, 34 years old. Um, and. Uh, I had to deal with the reality um, that death was real. Yes, my grandmother had transitioned. Yes, my grandfather transitioned, two grandmothers, but they lived to be you know, in the mid 70s, 80 years old. Mm-hmm. But this is my father. Right. And so, in the midst of that, the notion of planning, uh, I've been sent all around the country, in particular working for a, a healthcare company. Um, teaching at uh, the National Medical Association, Black Doctors, National Black Nurses Association, uh, Black Nurses Rock. I'm that guy who I know is a revenue attorney. He's going to come and teach ethics and advanced care planning. Uh, and we are dealing with the reality uh, that we must transition. Now, we talk about the dichotomy of me being uh, ordained clergy and uh, a licensed attorney.
0: Right.
1: People are like, oh, you know, how are you an attorney? You're a pastor. Isn't one supposed to tell the truth and the other one is a liar? No. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament uh, tradition of the Old Testament prophets, they are advocates. They advocate advocate on behalf of the people to God that God grant justice. As I'm we advocate, all right? They kind of go hand in hand. But more importantly, I also know that uh, within our Ash Wednesday celebration is two active Protestants, yourself and myself. We have our Ash Wednesday services. We we give this blessing from ashes. You come from ashes. You shall return. Unless if you're Jesus Christ, uh, if you believe in African uh, folklore, Osiris, um, or or Superman, for those who believe in the power of Clark Kent, uh, you will be born through a natural birth and hopefully you will die a non-traumatic death. It is inevitable. We will Die. And so, the sooner or the faster we get over uh, the notion of being afraid of death, mm-hmm. it's really a part of life cycle. Right. Um, the, um, the 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 vitality that we had 20 years ago, coming out of college, um, traveling the world, is different now. I, I still think I'm 21 years old, right, but right. I'm not. <laughs> I <know more. laughs> um, and I learned that. From seeing my mother, who is you know just celebrated her 69th birthday two days ago, so we are getting older, it's a part of the natural progression of life.
0: So, when you're trying to have those conversations with people and they say, I- I'm not going to discuss this with anybody else, uh, uh Rev. Attorney, I'm only talking about this with you, so it's great mm-hmm. that you're giving me this information, and I'll go ahead and I'll um. Uh, have my living will drawn up by you, but I'm not gonna tell my kids about it. I'll put it in a lock box, okay, or safe in my attic, and I will write the combination and put it in my treasure chest somewhere else, and then upon my dying, I'm gonna whisper the combination and tell them what a key is, and then everything will be fine.
1: (laughs) Now the, the the younger attorney in theory says it is at the discretion of the client the principal it's their wish um and 10 years ago that's when some of my first clients started to make their transition um really between five and ten years ago okay you know what happened i got nasty phone calls from their heirs why did she not leave me a portion of the house why did she leave it to this sibling and not me why does she hate me so much? Um, and I'm there, you know, being called, you know, everything but a child of God, um, mm-hmm. trying to help them rationalize the fact that it was their wish, but more importantly, also trying to give a semblance of pastoral counseling and care. Right. Uh, yeah, and arguing that's a, you know, a, a conflict of interest, but nonetheless, the best option. I try to encourage clients, we can create this document one on one, but I'm going to tell them who needs to have the document, okay. i.e., right. their okay. executor, their agent. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs to be blindsided in particular based off of the agency responsibilities that they have to carrying out someone's wishes that are reflective of their estate plan. But um, again, it's the person's will and by and large, um, the good thing that I never have an issue with is when I have clients, I'm not convincing them to do the estate plan. They're coming to me saying, Well, they're coming to you. Well,
0: and, I, when, my, when I bring my parents next week, um, they're to be dragging them. So this is just right. a conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But,
0: mm-hmm. Did you have some slides that you wanted to share?
1: Yes, um, I, I do. Um, so... On the estate planning piece, if you um, want want to make
0: sure people get this information, we do have some questions. I am going to let you bring that up and I'm going to give my cord for a moment and then I'll get to the questions, but I'll let you bring up.
1: Okay. Um, And so on the estate planning piece, going in a slightly different direction than what I was going to do. Just w for one quick second.
0: I know someone basically asked, um, they made a statement that they thought that when you died, all your assets and everything just goes away um, when you die. So they, um, I think we're appreciative of you explaining that there is an estate. And so can you touch on what would happen if there wasn't any estate planning done and then there are heirs?
1: Yes, I sure can do that, um, just very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So here we go.
0: for those of you who are just tuning in, I'm talking here with the Reverend Attorney, Reverend Dr. Aaron J. McLeod. Um, He is the senior pastor of Gorham United Methodist Church in Chicago. And he is also a a licensed attorney who has his own practice in the city as well. We are talking about legacy building and what that means. We're talking about advanced directives, so your living will. Um, We're talking about those documents that you need to get in order to ensure that those those who care and love for you um, will know exactly what your plans are um, for how to care for them properly. So if you're not a power of attorney and you don't have a power of attorney or you are a child of someone who um, may be sickly or um, senior, uh, senior citizen and you don't know who their power of attorney is and you have five other siblings. That might be an opportunity for you to have a conversation with those people in your life to say, hey, we just want to know what your wishes are and who do you want to carry out those wishes. So thank you, um, Reverend Aaron, for joining us today. And I'll let you move on with your slide deck.
1: Okay, very quickly. I'm just switching gears um, to get specifically into the advanced care planning. Uh, And weighing in on the legal concepts very quickly, and then I'll go more broadly into the whole legacy piece, but uh, just following your lead. So this whole notion of advanced care planning deals with preparation. My mother uh, used to tell me when I was a child that an ounce of preparation is are worth a pound of cure. An ounce of preparation is worth a pound of cure. Also, when I pledged the greatest fraternity known to mankind, Omega sci Phi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, my DP taught us that piss-poor preparation promotes piss-poor performance, and piss-poor performance promotes pain. Don't read too much into that, but the more prepared we were, the better instructional nights we had, <laughs> all right? And so I say all of that to say is, um, when we are uh, talking about advanced care planning and you know people dying without things and a place, or if you die, who does your property go to? We're here to dispel myths. All right. So when you die without a writing, that's called dying intestate, intestacy. All right, and that means that there is no will, uh, and there is no trust, there is no written direction about how that person wants their property to be disseminated to their heirs. Who are their heirs? Your offspring, your children. If you have no children, your siblings. Um, No siblings, uh, no children, your cousins. You are related to somebody. And if you die without a writing, um, we apply what we call the common law. So we talked about this whole notion of states' rights, right? And so within the common law, it's this whole notion of sto, similar transactions or occurrences, S-T-O. And states have developed laws based off of similar occurrences or transactions. So, for example, R.C., let me use you for an example. If I'm driving my car and I hit you from behind with my car in your car, who's liable? You hit me, so you. Yes. So who's liable? You are. Exactly. Exactly. Why am I liable? Because... Not only did we learn in driver's ed when we were high school that we should practice safe distance so that I should be able to hit on the brakes so I shouldn't rear-end you from behind. Similar transactions of occurrences suggest that the person driving from behind should execute the best precaution not to rear-end the person in front of them. So what does it have to do with the state planning? In all 50 states plus the... Uh, uh, Puerto Rico and Guam, the territories, uh, what we have deduced is that the person who should receive assets, if there's no writing, should be the next of kin, i.e. your surviving spouse or your children in equal share. So what happens when you don't have a writing? We apply what we call the common law, similar transactions of occurrences that your next of kin will get your property. Well, what happens if you don't have a writing outlining that? Your surviving spouse gets your property. You may say, well, we got married. We live together. But what happens if I don't like my surviving spouse? Or your kids get your property in equal shares. So you have Miss Janie. She has five children plus Johnny. Uh, the four angels did everything that Miss Janie said to do, but Johnny did things his way. And so she dies without a writing. And Miss Janie, uh, is the laughing stock of her children, in particular, Johnny, because Johnny did it his way. And he inherits his rightful portion because she did not write him out of her will, all right? And so, intestacy. So you, you, you hear me saying this whole notion of will. Will, will, will. Last will and testament, last will and testament. Growing up, uh, I grew up in the South. And during the summer, my grandmother raised me, my sister. And she thought that we would uh, be outside playing in the summer heat we would die of heat stroke. So she would call us inside to the house so we would not be playing in the heat of day between the hours of 12 and 3 p.m. So between those hours, all the game shows were off, all the cartoons were off, and we were subjected to the story, soap operas, the days of our lives, guiding light. And without fail, there was always this protagonist character who was old and wealthy, who went against the obnoxious character who was young, and wild, and the protagonist character or the antagonist character rather would disgrace the protagonist wealthy person, and the protagonist wealthy person would say, "You have disgraced me, and I am writing you out of my will." Mm-hmm. Say, That's not- that line, yeah. You know line. that line. <laughs> line. <laughs> the reality is this: RC wills are not that important. Wills are not that important. Wills are not that important. Let me qualify that. Wills. When you die intestate, you go to a very, very, very bad place. It's called probate court. For the court to apply the common law that your heirs who you don't like, who have disgraced you, or even if you like them, you choose to give your assets away to your alma mater versus to your children who are independently wealthy, um, the court, if you don't have that in writing, will then apply the common law. Not only does the court apply the common law when you die intestate without any writing, they also apply the common law when you simply have a last will and testament. A last will and testament is going to keep you in probate court. Well, you may say, well, why is probate court so bad? One, it's untimely. You have to wait anywhere from six months to a year to open up a probate estate. What happens when you open up a probate estate? Everybody who you owe money to, that credit yeah. card you didn't pay off, that hospital bill that you didn't pay yeah. off before you died, yeah. they could put a lien on your estate because probate court is gonna put out a notice in the paper that Aaron McLeod has transitioned. And anybody who Aaron McLeod owes monies to can come and put a lien on the estate, get paid for what's ever there and anything, if anything is left over, it will then go to my heirs. Wealthy people in England in feudal times became wise. And what did they do? They devised a way to keep certain things out of probate. Their house, their money, and more importantly, their family. How do you do that? Through this notion of a living trust. It does a few things. One, it allows you to pass your property onto your heirs immediately without any encumbrances, all right? Without any hassles. Two, my grandmother used to say, keep people out of your business and stay out of grown folks' business. Good way to do that is through a trust. You're able to anonymously bequest property to the uh-huh. heirs who you want. Oh, I to be a pressure to do. And uh, at the time of transition, if it's properly funded, uh, that property goes to them at that time. So we've gone through intestacy, the last uh, will and testament, which is not that strong. and And let me let me let me make some lawyers' manage. I've had so many CPS teachers who, you know, for two hundred fifty dollars twenty years ago, went, an attorney came in, uh, and they uh, wrote up a last will and testament uh, for them. And it was like, uh, I did this. It was some program with the union. And I may be misspeaking, but somehow their affiliation with the board and some attorney came in and offered this service, right? Now, here's the reality. At least you weren't in testing. You had a simple um, roadmap of how you want your product uh, or your assets rather to be disseminated amongst your heirs. But here's the trick. This is what we do. I don't do this per se, but we will draft a last will and testament for you to come fishing back for me because I drafted your last will and testament to take you through probate. Probate, you must retain an attorney. Now, RC, if you go down and you take your gun and you kill somebody, you may say, Reverend Attorney, I don't need you to represent me. I can represent my bad self at 26 in California as what we call a pro se. I won't make it, I won't make it. But you cannot be a pro se defendant in a probate court. You must retain an attorney. And if you can't afford one under certain circumstances, one will be appointed for you. And those are very rare. When you talk about probate court, you're dealing with assets, money. Attorneys will be paid fees, all right? And so to that end, the will, 9 times 10, is the step in the door to get you to, once you died, come back and retain a licensed attorney to provide Mm -hmm. services for you to take you through the probate process, whereby the attorneys will get paid first. And if there's anything left over that will go to your creditors, uh, which your attorney arguably will be as well, and then to your family. But wise people who understand the power of trust and the anonymity of trust will entrust their property to avoid the probate uh, process. Now we live in, you know, the state of Illinois for homeowners uh, and particularly for those who are a little reluctant to go through the process If their greatest asset is a home. What I instruct them to do is get an Illinois land trust. Why? So you can tell um, people what I call a truthful lie that you don't own property when you actually do. It makes you judgment proof. All right, why is that important? All right, let's go back to our car example. I rear in RC with my big truck, right? I rear in RC with my big truck. After I rear in RC with my big truck, I then uh, recognize that she is a pre existing eggshell patient. So she has $10,000 worth of uh, property damage to her car, but $250,000 worth of medical bills. Now, I owe her, because I rear-ended her, $260,000. Your average car insurance is only $100,000, so now I'm on the hook to her, $160,000. Most people aren't liquid $160,000, and I would argue that you shouldn't be liquid $160,000. You should be investing that into an interest-bearing um, or asset uh, appreciating endeavor that makes more money than uh, the rates that you would have on your liquid cash, i.e. real estate, just to keep it simple, right? Um, certain stocks, right? You know, that Tesla stock or that Apple stock that recently split, right? Greater value than cash, digression. My point in saying that is this, when RC knows that I owe her $160,000, her attorney's gonna research what I had And she's going to come and say, well, if I'm a homeowner and my property's not in trust, let me put a lien on his house. Mm -hmm. Luckily, you won't be able to find what I own because all of my property is entrusted. I can tell a truthful lie when I don't own property when I actually do. How is that a truthful lie? I have a trust agreement with a third party to hold my property in trust at a contractual rate on average $100 per year, not per month not per day, per year, per year, whereby I'm judging proof. I don't own anything, all right, but I do own anything. It's not about what you own, but it's about what you control. Now, we've already gone over advanced directives, um, but I'll talk about this notion of real estate property. This is when you appoint somebody to handle your business affairs, i.e. paying your bills, uh, transacting or selling, buying selling real estate, uh, buying selling stock, when you choose not to do it or you cannot do it uh, in this context it's when you are incapacitated, but you know if RC wants to go down to uh, take a week in um, you know at the Wisconsin deals and she wants to buy a property uh, in Galena and she doesn 't want to go to the closing, she can appoint a power of attorney to go and purchase the property for her and she not show up to the closing all right so that 's her choosing not to be there, but there's a difference if um, you know, she has renal failure and she's bedridden and she's still viable and alive, but she can't go and write checks on a daily basis. So her agent, her power of attorney for property, uh, will conduct those transactions for her very quickly. We talked about the power of attorney for health care and now the durable power of attorney or the power of attorney for property. The difference is, is that one is for property, one is for health care. It can be the same person, but you must have two different instruments to differentiate between uh, the two agents. So this is is the
0: financial power of attorney? Yes. Okay.
1: Okay. All right, so um, I know that was a long way to answer some of your questions, but But I I wanted to get to that. And uh, there's another piece, if you will allow me, uh, to talk about the legacy portion. Yes,
0: uh, definitely. Hmm? We appreciate this information. This is good. So we will have a part two. We only have six minutes. So I want you to no touch on the legacy part a little bit. And then we're going to have a part two. Because I was writing notes here. And so <laughs> I need a follow-up.
1: <laughs> no worries. So very quickly, uh, since we have six uh, minutes left, um, let me just do this very quickly. So this whole notion of legacy coaching is about service. Muhammad Ali says that uh, the rent we pay to live on earth is a service that we provide to one another. Now, legacy coaching is not, you know, wishful thinking. You just don't, you know, you're not, you just don't, um, uh, you're not born and just go through life and ultimately you just leave uh, a, a good legacy. Either it will be a good one or it will be a bad one. It will be one that's well thought out or one that's not well planned. But one thing that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, said, our first, uh, our, our most prolific African American uh, scholar, says that uh, in 1897, in his book on the Negro business, that uh, the man or the woman who will not control his or her finances will not control anything. There is a correlation between economics and the power to champion issues and curb the impact of disparities. Nothing positive will ever occur in our community that fails to circulate its money. Uh, Today, the black dollar goes through our community probably uh, six times before it leaves. You're talking about the Jewish and the Asian community, you're talking almost 30 to 40 times of circulation amongst um, black, Uh, amongst Asian or Jewish businesses. We must make a conscious effort, particularly in pandemic, to be business creators and to be producers of products, uh, not just for our people, but to uh, export outside of our community to build up our coffers of business. Mm -hmm. Um, When we think about W.E.B. Du Bois, we look at him as a historian, uh, as a father of American social work, but Before he got his PhD from Harvard, he was studying over in Germany to earn a PhD in economics and unfortunately couldn't finish because he ran out of money. And my point in saying that is when you have a grasp on meaningful financial literacy, mind you, they didn't teach this in school um, to us. Uh, Some of us had home economics, but even when I was coming through school and I went to magnet schools, it was downplayed as being necessary. Uh, But the notion of You know, understanding how to attain good credit, maintain good credit, understand uh, the utility of uh, purchasing real estate and uh, starting a business. Those practical pieces uh, and us not exercising uh, the utility of business formation will be the cause of our demise. We must build business and push legacy forward. And within that, we go from building business uh, to building community, to building families, to supporting educational institutions that create or run that cycle all over again. We talked about you know, our denominational affiliation. What does it mean to be Baptist, a white Baptist in Texas? It means that you're gonna go up in a Baptist day school, go to your Baptist church, uh, your crowning glory will be earning a bachelor's degree from Baylor University, and then going to Baylor Law School, Medical School, Business School, finding a spouse who attended either one of those schools, and starting that trajectory all over again. And it's within the context of being white Baptist, white Mormon, white and Catholic, uh, white and non-denominational. But when it comes to being black and uh, financially prudent and building uh, community in a meaningful way, that you know we have the National Baptist Convention, the Church of God in Christ. The two largest black denominations in the world, and they don't have a hospital or a meaningful research one institution problematic. Problematic. On hmm.
0: that note, Reverend Aaron, that's yeah. where I want yeah. to pick up for part two
1: all right
0: (laughs) i will write that note that's exactly where i want to pick up on part two um moving on and continuing because we were just getting into the thick of things but i like to leave my audience wanting more so that you all will come back so today's monday musings was about legacy building um not just for black people but i'm speaking to a brother here and i'm speaking to my people um and so thank you to the uh, to the Reverend Attorney Aaron J. McLeod. And we will have him back for a part two. Thank you all who are watching today. And I hope you all have a fantastic evening. This has been Monday Music with RC. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. This episode has been brought to you by Fit Life Give, a black-owned, queer, and trans-friendly luxury mobile spa. Fit Life Give specializes in couples and individual massage from corporate events to spa and pamper parties all across the Chicagoland area. Massage is a form of fitness, and you need to have a fit-filled life in order to give to others. So book Fit life Give for your next event or personal service. That's FitLifeGive.biz.